I'm Maida Getman, and welcome to Infertility Crossroads. I'm a mom to donor-conceived twins, and I went through eight rounds of fertility treatment before finally becoming pregnant with my two girls. I'm also a donor conception coach and founder of The Donor Downlow, a self-paced online program for people who are at the crossroads of donor conception and wondering which path is right for them. Perhaps you're like me, you thought having a baby would be easy, yet here you are every day, week, and month having to make big, scary, and radical decisions about what your future might look like. I call it the infertility crossroads. Whether you're just getting started on your fertility journey, have been trying for years, or are headed down an alternative path, you are welcome here. Join me each week where I will walk alongside you through all the infertility crossroads. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Infertility Crossroads. I'm Maida Getman, and today I have the lovely Sarah Reese with me. Sarah is amazing. I'm so excited to share her with you. She has struggled and did struggle for a decade to have her family and literally endured it all. Pregnancy loss, IVF, ovarian tumors, invasive surgeries. Eventually, she was able to build her family with egg donation and surrogacy. Today, she works with her clients through her online program using a range of evidence-based modalities, including acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, Eastern philosophy, and feminine wisdom. Sarah, you are beautiful and amazing, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Maida. It's it's wonderful to be here. Good, good. Well, okay. I know I just did like a really long list of things that you've been through and how you work with your clients, but I would love for you in your own words to share with our listeners just a little bit about your incredible story to building your family. Thank you. And I will try and keep it fairly brief (laughs) because it could take up the whole podcast episode. (laughs) But I tried for 12 months to have a baby. And after 12 months, I had um, an early pregnancy loss. So I went for what I thought was going to be a routine ultrasound that actually revealed I had a borderline ovarian tumour. Now, borderline tumour is, it used to be classified as cancer. And I think about 15 years ago, it was reclassified. And so whilst it is borderline, it is quite dangerous because if it starts to spread to other organs, it can quite easily become malignant. So um, my oncologist at the time advised me that I needed to have a total hysterectomy, so including my ovaries. And I went in for surgery at the time and I said, the only thing you're allowed to do is take a little bit of my right ovary. So he did that, but he also had to take a little bit of my left ovary, half of it. Um, And then after that point, um, I found a new oncologist who was going to support me with trying to have um, a family. So over three years, I went through, as you've already shared, multiple rounds of IVF, four more early pregnancy losses, and the tumour was spreading to the left ovary again over that period of time. So I needed to have another surgery that left me with a quarter of an ovary. So I arrived at a point where I was 40 years old. I had a quarter of an ovary, three low-grade embryos on ice, and I was experiencing unexplained infertility. So 
So it was at that point that I decided that if I was going to be able to have my own child, I was going to need to pursue surrogacy with my remaining three embryos. So we ended up going through surrogacy in Thailand, um, as this was back in 2011. And we flew our embryos over to Thailand to meet with the surrogacy agency, the clinic, and our surrogate and hand over my precious last remaining three embryos that were to be transferred to our surrogate. Only after doing the first embryo transfer, that first straw was empty. Mm. So there was no embryo on the hook. Um, and then the second straw had a really low-grade embryo that ended up resulting in a negative pregnancy result. And the clinic was unwilling to put our surrogate through another cycle of preparing her for an embryo transfer with that one low-grade embryo that I had. Hmm. So that's where I arrived at my crossroads and this was where I needed to make a decision about egg donation. So after a month or so of making that decision, um, we, we decided to go ahead with it. And the only challenge was that we were kind of railroaded by our donor, um, sorry, not by our donor agency, our surrogacy agency, into using a donor agency that they were affiliated with. And the challenge with that was it was not our first choice mm-hmm. and we didn't know anything about them. The upshot of that was that the donor agency, as we were partway through our cycle with our donor, just stopped communicating with us and they ended up um, embezzling 20,000 Australian dollars. Mm, heartbreaking. Now, I don't want anyone listening to this to be put off by that because this is over 10 years ago and it was a very different landscape back then. Mm-hmm. So um, it was really challenging. I'm sharing this with you because you know, this was without question. We're here to talk about grief today. Mm-hmm. That was without question the lowest point in my 10-year journey. I was so broken and vulnerable. It, it was, you know, hard enough. It was the hardest thing I'd gone through um, at that time to turn to egg donation, to then have that happen, um, that really that really broke me. So after recovering from that, I ended up choosing my own donor agency, which was an agency in South Africa that had donors that were able to travel. So we um, we found a beautiful egg donor who we're now still friends with to this day and her mum as well. Her mum's quite involved. Um, and I now have my nine-year-old daughter, Chloe, and a second surrogacy process that we went through with the same batch of embryos resulted in my second daughter, Sasha, two years later. I love that. You are spot on. We are here today. I've I've invited you onto the show today to talk about grief and holy smokes, talk about all the different pieces of grief that you had to endure and process along the path for you to have your two beautiful children and um, to get to be a mom, it's it's pretty incredible that they're here with us. Yeah, it is. It's it's pretty amazing, and I think you know, I'd love to share a few tips for dealing with grief a little bit later on in the episode. But 
um, you know, I think it's really important to befriend, befriend your grief and, yeah. and become familiar with it because it's the only way that it doesn't undermine you and that's kind of what I had to do because it went on for such a long time. You and I are both moms via egg donor, which is such a beautiful process to be able to go through, but holy smokes, there's this big thing in the egg donation, sperm donation, embryo donation, even adoption path that we call genetic grief. Um, and grief is such a huge topic, right? And I talk about grief a lot on, on the podcast, all different types. Today, I really want to focus on that genetic grief piece. Coming to you, will you share with us what the heck is genetic grief? So I should probably frame up here that there are two kinds of genetic grief that people might hear about. So one type of genetic grief, which is not related to what we're talking about today, but just so that we're clear on what genetic grief relating to the egg donor path is, is um, some research that's been done that proves that grief is actually passed down through people's DNA. Mm-hmm. So they've done research and they've found that you know, if you've got a great-great-grandparent who's gone through a world war or maybe the Holocaust, that you can experience some PTSD as a result of the grief that actually sits in their system and gets passed down through their DNA. So that's not the kind of grief that we're talking about today. So if you've heard of that kind of genetic grief, that's not what we're reflecting on here. The genetic grief I'm referring to relates to the grief a woman experiences when she needs to turn to egg donation or, you know, alternatively adoption. And there's kinds of two layers to this grief, I think. It's the grief that you have on a conscious level which is grieving over the ability to see yourself in your child or grief due to a belief that your child won't see you as your mother. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the kind of all the losses around that kind of thing that are quite conscious. And if you ask any woman that's going through egg donation or boys to do so, and I'm sure you find this maybe with the women you work with, they'll have their two or three things that are, are really kind of acute in terms of the grief they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is a more unconscious, deeper level of grief that is actually quite primal that relates to this ingrained desire that we have to reproduce Mm -hmm. and have our children. And it's it's very ingrained in our psyche, our physiology, and also our DNA. And when we can't fulfill this desire and we want to, at a really deep level, it can rock us to our core and it can be a a genuine tragedy. So I think there's the two layers of the genetic grief. One are the things that we can point out quite easily and say, this is what's really breaking me apart. Mm -hmm. But then there's this kind of deeper, more unconscious aspect to it, which is what I think is so painful about the genetic grief. Um, I actually was looking at a poll uh, that was conducted recently by Fertility Hub and Egg Donor Bank USA, and they wanted to ask people about their experience of turning to egg donation, and 100% of the respondents reported experiencing significant grief when researching their decision about using donor eggs. Um, You know, it's a really 
unique form of grief to the women who experience it. And I think a lot of people can't relate because I don't know about you, but how many times did you hear people say to you, oh, why don't you just go and adopt or why don't you just, you know, with, with a wave of the hand as if it was some easy decision. So I think it's really important to be very cognizant of this grief that we're experiencing so that, you know, as a woman faced with this path, you can be conscious and intentional about how you tend to that grief so that it, it doesn't overwhelm you. Yeah, I mean, I think you are, you're spot on. And I think it's so important to be talking about this and to just be calling it out and saying it out loud. Because I think for me, when I was going through all of this, like I didn't have the label of grief. I didn't have the label of genetic grief. I just knew how I was feeling. And to me, so often grief, especially in the U S but I think especially in like Western cultures, Grief is really something we think about when we lose a loved one, right? Or someone that we care about. It's not so much talked about in terms of like our life experiences or losing something that we never really had, right? Because like we're experiencing this grief and loss of not being able to have a child with our own genetics, but it's not like we have ever had a child necessarily. I mean, for those going through secondary infertility, they may be experiencing that they know what it's like to have a child with their own genetics. But for a lot of us, we don't know what that is, but to just be able to say what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, this like ebb and flow up and down the feelings that you're having, those are grief and they're normal and they're real and they're not linear. And even to just put it into words and to label it, I think can be really helpful to then help normalize those feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think any aspect of infertility grief, including egg donation, is a very disenfranchised form of grief because of those exact reasons that you've just mentioned. And so a lot of the grief gets put into the shadows and we push it down and we blame ourselves for not being able to, you know, inverted commas, cope better mm-hmm. um, because other people are not reflecting back to us that the grief is valid. So I agree with you. I think that's why it's so important to talk about this and normalise what people are experiencing. Yeah. So talk to us a little about a little bit about some examples of genetic grief. So like we kind of talked about it from like this higher level, but like how would people know that, that, you know, what are some things that they could be looking for seeing in their own feelings or behavior that would be signs or symptoms that they might be experiencing this genetic grief? Yeah, sure. So there's probably a, a couple of good ways to talk about that. So maybe first, if we look at a very common framework that's talked about in relation to the different phases of grief that people move through. Um, and then I can share you know, some of the specific experiences that I had around grief and that other women that are going through egg donation have around grief that people might be able to relate to. So if we look at a very common framework that's talked about when it comes to grief, um, it's the five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about this in her book in 1969 called On Death and Dying, and it's 
one of the most commonly used frameworks and a lot of people might relate to it in relation to perhaps having someone that they've lost but maybe not consider it in relation to you know, egg donation and the genetic grief we're talking about today. So I'll go through these five phases and maybe give a few examples of how it relates to the egg donation path and then talk about some other really pointed types of grief that women might be experiencing. So the first phase is shock and denial. And this is where often there's a sense of numbness at the point of realisation that we're at this crossroads of needing to turn to egg donation. So this is where, you know, we are in a state of disbelief. It feels surreal as if it's not happening. And this is actually a self-protective detachment from your feelings. It's your psyche's way of not being able to cope and kind of putting the brakes on the experience a little bit so you've got some breathing space to kind of process what's going on. So, for example, you've just come out of a fertility specialist's office and they've told you that's it. You've got to turn to donor eggs. It's those kinds of moments where we experience this shock and denial. Hmm. Hmm. And then the next phase, you know, and this is non-linear, as you said before, and there are no kind of set time frames around all of these things, but a common behaviour that will show you that you're kind of moving to the next phase is the anger, the anger and the rage. This is where the shock's worn off and you're now starting to face the reality of the situation that you're in. So this is where you might be thinking, why me? It's not fair. How could this be happening? Who's to blame? Why would this happen? What have I done wrong? Hmm. And we can sometimes find ourselves lashing out at loved ones, maybe our medical team, and often women become very angry at themselves and feel like a failure as a woman. And I know that was certainly a path that I went down one too many times myself. So that second stage is that anger stage. And then the next stage is what's known as bargaining. And this is where we're kind of wrestling with the reality of what is going on. We're still in that form of resistance and we're still kind of starting to put our feet on the path of moving towards egg donation, but we might still be invested in still trying to have a baby naturally depending on the circumstances. So I'll give you a great example of this. I was at the stage where I had to have a total hysterectomy um, because the tumour had grown back a third time at the back of my uterus. And so we were removing everything, including the little piece of ovarian tissue. I'd already signed an egg donor agreement. We had the surrogacy process going, but when they removed that ovarian tissue, I said, can you please just see if we can harvest some eggs? Because I was still in that bargaining stage. I was still already moving down the path, but trying to still wrestle with not closing the door entirely. The next one is, I think, one of the hardest phases, and that's the fourth phase, which is depression. And this is where we come to feel the full force of the reality of our situation. It's where the realisation is fully hit home. And I think the difficult thing about this is there's no standard length of time that this can go for. It really depends on what we do to support ourselves or what else might be happening on our path. But, you know, 
when you look at the research, it shows that if you had to have a bit of a, a bell curve of the amount of time that period, people are in this really acute stage of the grief, generally speaking, it's around about three months. And, you know, that's the sleeplessness, the being unable to function, feeling like everything in your life is um, coming to an end. It's that really black stage that people move through. And then there's the last stage, which is acceptance. And this is the final stage where people are sort of coming out of the darkness of despair. And whilst it's still incredibly painful, they're now being resourceful about how to find ways to move forward and recognising, of course, that it's non-linear. So we do dip back into those previous stages mm-hmm. um, and just knowing that if those things come up, it's totally normal. Um, but it's great if we can get ourselves back into that acceptance stage so we're still keeping things moving forward. So that's that's the framework that is often referred to in terms of grief, but I think it's important to recognise the ways genetic grief shows up with egg donation specifically. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the examples that women talk about and that I've experienced as well? And I think by having some of these examples and recognising the grief, as you said earlier, it helps you to understand what to expect when you're going through the process to normalise your experience. But it also helps you to be more aware of the different forms of grief so that you can deal with them more intentionally. Yep. I loved how you went through the different stages of grief and talked about those things and and how you called out that it's really, it's not linear, um, that you kind of go back and forth in and out of things. And some of those stages last longer than other ones, but like that you can flow back and forth and, and what that looks like looks differently. I mean, I will full on admit, like, even after having my kids and having them here, like, there's still times where I've thought like, Ooh, I wonder if we should have tried like one more thing. Right. And that, that moment lasts for maybe five seconds. You know, it's not like days and days and days, like it had been back at the beginning, but I, when those come up, instead of beating myself up and going like, oh my gosh, why are you thinking that way? I can go, you know what? That's just part of the grief of this process. And I can accept it. And I can say like, nope, remember you tried everything you could. And then you go back into that acceptance phase. Um, But that it's okay. It's okay to flow in and out of those things. Um, So thank you for sharing those with us. I would love for you to share some examples of what maybe genetic grief might look like specifically for egg donation. Like what are some of those things that people would be experiencing? Well, the first thing I'd like to say about this is that often when we look at these things that I'm going to share, they look like just fears. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very easy for women who've been through egg donation to just say, look, don't worry, once you have your kid, you won't be worried about any of those things. But that's not where people are at right now. They're experiencing the grief right now. When I was going through infertility, I used to have people in my life say, don't worry about being sad about infertility now because once you have your kids, you won't worry about it. Well, that didn't help me in the moment. So uh, a lot of these things are really relevant to where people are at before they have their children. And 
although it's different for everyone, these are some of the most common concerns. And this is based on women I've spoken with and also my experience. So I think a really common grief that women are going through is not seeing their own genes reflected back in their children's eyes. And so although it sounds trivial to some people, it speaks to that primal grief I was referring to. It's it's deeper than worrying whether your child looks like you. It's it's actually on a deeper level the loss or it's a symbol of the loss of your the continuation of your DNA. The second grief women have is grieving that their connection to their children will be reduced. That if they don't have that genetic connection, they're not going to feel feel fully like their mother. And that's a really common one. I think it's probably one of the biggest ones that, that women wrangle with. Another one that I see is worrying that their partner, if they, you know, their partners don't um, give them the sperm, or even their parents-in-law will have a stronger bond to the child because of the, the shared blood and DNA. Another one is that if you've got siblings and they've got children, that your own parents will favour your siblings' grandchildren over yours because there's not that genetic link. So that's another grief that women go through. Another one is that your children won't love you like a mother or see you as their real mother, particularly once they understand about how they came into the world. For other people, it's the social stigma is also, it may not be the main one, but that social stigma of donor conception. What will other people think? Will they think that I'm the mother still? Again, it might sound trivial to some people, but it is a very valid part of the grief of egg donation. Also, that your children might be devastated when you explain that they were conceived via egg donation so that they might go through their own grief process around that. So, you know, maybe people listening will be able to relate to some of these concerns or all of them. But as we've already shared, Maida, you know, in talking about and naming these different places of grief, um, anyone that might be listening and who's at a crossroads with using an egg donor feels very validated Mm -hmm. in what they're experiencing. I personally, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I personally experienced every single one of those things. Yeah. And, you know, now that I'm on this side of it, I see that those things were really fears, um, but that they were part of the grief. They were part of trying to navigate, is this the right path for me? And what are some of these things I need to think about and consider? Absolutely. And that's why whenever I speak to someone who's going through egg donation and they say to me, well, you're a mum of kids through egg donation. What's it like? And I say, well, you know, I experienced all of those things. It's great, but I don't dismiss what they're wrangling with in terms of grief because it's it's real. It's front and centre for them at the time. It's, I would never just say, look, all those things you're worrying about, they're just fears don't worry about it it's not the reality it'll be really different because it's just dismissing the grief that they're going through and people need to process those things yeah I think that's a key point you have to process your own grief and everyone processes their own grief differently I think about I lost my dad six months after my kids were born he was not sick it was a very traumatic experience 
looking at my family, my siblings, my three siblings, myself, my mom, my husband, my sisters-in-law, like all of us experienced that same loss, but all of us processed that grief differently, mm-hmm. right? Each and every one of us had our own process, our own feelings, our own, you know, how we managed our lives in the midst of that. And I think like that is a hundred percent true with how each and every person processes their genetic grief too. And I think that's acutely aware, like we're acutely aware of that with our partner, Mm. right? Because if we're just doing egg donation, you know, my husband still got to use his sperm. So he didn't have to process genetic grief of his own genetics, but he did have some grief and loss around not using my genetics because he had always thought like, we're going to get married and have kids and it's going to, you know, our kids are going to be genetically half made and half me. And so like, I think it's important to recognize that we all like there's grief on multiple levels and we all process that grief differently and in our own time too, that it's not you're like, okay, I'm going to give myself four weeks and I'm going to do this, this week and this and this and this, and then it's going to be done and I'm good. And I'm, you know, check that off the list and let's move on. Um, but allowing space to be able to process that is so key. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So feed one the time I'm, I'm often asked with people that I support, you know, how long am I going to be in this phase for? And, and that's why I said, look, if you look at the research, the bell curve says three months for the really acute phase, but it's, it's really, you know, it's so hard to say because it grief just takes the time that it needs to take. Mm-hmm. It has its own agenda. It does. Its own needs, yeah. It does. Knowing that, you know, these things we've talked about and knowing that, I love how you said that, grief has its own agenda and it takes its own time. What are some ways that you encourage people to to manage and deal with their grief and really kind of work through that grief? Yeah, well, I think firstly, you just named it a a minute or so ago and that is making space for the grief. You know, it's we often avoid grief because it's such a big emotion and I think often we're not taught the skills to be able to deal with grief particularly with something like infertility, we get thrust into it and all of a sudden we're having to to navigate it. So, you know, it's really important that you take that time and that space. Mm -hmm. The only way out of grief is through it. It's the only way. So that requires the space. So this is why I think what we're talking about today, the different faces of grief, recognising it as grief, even if it looks like anger or looks like numbness, it's grief. And so that's calling for you to give it the space that it needs. The other thing that's really important, which I think relates to this conversation today, Maida, is sharing your grief with others and talking about it. Hmm. We, from a neuroscience perspective, we are wired to connect with other people and particularly with experiences like grief. And so when we are going through grief, as we said at the start of this conversation, because egg donation grief is quite disenfranchised, we feel like we can't talk about it or that people aren't going to understand and that grief gets cast into the shadows. Mm-hmm. 
and this is where we get this shame around our grief and we don't get the support that we need. And so when you look at a lot, I think this is a real struggle for us culturally, as actually, the way that we deal with grief at large. Um, I've looked into Native cultures and how they approach grief and they have so many rituals mm-hmm. to process the grief collectively as a group. And so look at how you can replicate that. So join an online or in-person egg donation support group or reach out to someone you know who's supportive. Even if they're not going through the same thing as you, just someone you know that is good at holding space for grief and make sure that you are sharing it and talking about it. It's when it gets cast into the shadows that it it kind of, it starts calling out for attention and that's when those the intense emotions of grief start to amplify when we kind of cast it aside. The next one is getting professional support. So whether it's a psychologist, a counsellor, maybe a coach who's walked in your shoes, maybe someone like yourself, Maida, getting professional support means that you have a place to share your grief but you're also going to get some strategies to be able to navigate it as well. Mm-hmm. And research shows we difficult life situations that one of the number one predictors of being able to navigate it effectively is getting professional support even if it's not just about how do I decide on a a donor process or an agency or a clinic that's really important because that helps take the load off but also the emotional side of things as well which kind of leads me into my fourth recommendation or tip which is learning new tools and strategies to deal with grief. So, you know, most of us are not taught this kind of thing uh, to deal with a life crisis as big as needing to turn to egg donation and deal with genetic grief. So whether it's doing an online program or listening to podcasts or reading a book or attending some sort of course, do something to build your skill set around how to deal with grief. So those are my four best tips. They're certainly the things that I support women with and that I use for myself and that helped me to kind of climb out of that hole that I was in. You're spot on when you talk about no one teaches us how to deal with this. Grief is such a huge emotion, like you talked about, and to not be given any tools or resources just as part of navigating life. When you do find yourself in a position where you're experiencing this kind of grief, finding that professional support, finding someone who can help you finding a course or someone who can teach you about grief and to your point, listening to a podcast or just learning more about it can really, really help. And that our society, our Western society, again, like we don't do a good job of grief. Grief is scary to us. Mm -hmm. And it's scary when someone we know is grieving and we don't know how to show up or we don't know how to support. And so I just think I love those tips because they're easy. They're not easy things to do, but they're, they're not complicated either. You just have to be willing to create that space to reach out to a professional or someone who can teach you and share information with you and be willing to be a little bit vulnerable to then be able to acquire the skills you need to figure out again, the best way to process that grief for you, right? Because what's what worked for you, Sarah, may not work for me, Maida, and may not work for, you know, 
Kim who's listening or, you know, other people. So finding that kind of personalized support so that you can figure out what works best for you is, is just really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this was incredibly informative for me and helpful. And even as someone who's gone through it to, to have you break it down and lay it out in the way that you did, I feel like, oh my gosh, I went through all of these things and I didn't even necessarily recognize it. So to be able to, to have your insights and your expertise in this area has been so helpful. One thing that I always ask my guests is to share you know, around the topic of genetic grief, if if our listeners can take away one thing from this episode, what what would you have them take away? Well, whilst I really don't want to minimize the grief that anyone listening might be going through, um, I I really couldn't finish today's episode without a little bit of a glimmer of hope mm. um, and reassurance based on my own experience becoming a mother to egg donor children. So. Let's consider this. I turned to egg donation and surrogacy, which means I didn't have a conception in my belly. I had no pregnancy, minimal contact during the gestation period. In fact, none at all with my daughter, Sasha. Mm. So I wasn't at any of the scans. I had no genetic connection to either of my fathers, no breastfeeding. And for Sasha, my second daughter, I wasn't even in the same country she was with that when she was born. Mm. And I wasn't allowed into NICU, neonatal intensive care, intensive care with her for five days because I was sick when I arrived. Mm. Despite all of that, my children are 100% mine mm. and they never question for a second whether or not I'm their mum. And I've told them right from the beginning how they were conceived and the fact that we used an egg donation in the surrogate. And I actually did quite a lot of research into maternal bonding prior to having my girls. Um, and based on this and my own experience of being a mum, that connection between mother and child, it all comes down to attunement. Mm-hmm. And attunement is the ability to strengthen a relationship by being really present to what's going on with your child and being able to resonate with what's happening with them. Mm. And I believe that, this is just my personal belief, (laughs) that women who've gone through egg donation and or infertility in general tend to value that opportunity to parent their children and they're often really good at being attuned to their kids. And it's that kind of connection that's what the maternal connection is all about. It's not about genetic. And if I can share two other little stories just as that glimmer of hope mm-hmm. very quickly, of two course. people two people that I connected with, these little conversations that I had. One, the first one, I was at a party with someone I'd known for a while as I was going through infertility, hadn't told him that I was looking at egg donation. He was actually a parent to biological children, three biological children who had one adopted child. And he actually shared with me that his bond was the strongest with the adopted child. Um, and then I had another girl who I met um, as part of my mother's group and she was adopted and she had two siblings that were the biological children of her mum. And she said that her relationship with 
and mum was the strongest as well. Hmm. So even though that's not related to egg donation, we're talking here about genetic grief and those are just examples of that connection that I'm talking about. So it really is all that connection that a woman makes with her children rather than having that biological bond. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to leave everyone with that thought. I mean, I just, I love that. And and I think that that is 100% true. You know, I've talked about this before on the show, but I really feel like that bonding experience, that connection to your child starts as soon as you decide I'm going to do egg donor, mm-hmm. right? Like you may not even know who your donor is yet, but you are committing to creating your family in that way. And I know for me, like I was, I was just as emotionally invested in my egg donor cycle as I was in all the previous cycles that led up to, to me having to choose egg donor almost more so than when I was using my own genetics, because I had more hope and a better chance for things to, to happen and go right. Yeah. And I know that if that cycle had failed, now we were lucky and we had, we had success on our first egg donor cycle but I know that if that cycle had failed, I would have been probably more devastated than I was with my own genetics. And that's because those bonding and connection moments happen when you pick your donor, when you sign the papers, when you start going through the process, like you're building those connections and that emotional bond to this future child even before they're even here. And so you're right. It's those experiences. It's those moments. It's those those things that happen, whether you're using your own genetics or not, that bond you and bring you close to your child. It's not necessarily the genetic piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so, so wonderful. Well, Sarah, this has been amazing. Like I said, I've learned a ton and I knew a lot of this and I still learned some. So if people who are listening, and I would encourage all of you to do this, but how can people find you? How they can, can they connect with you? How can they work with you? How can they know more about you? So I can be found on Instagram at open to life underscore Sarah Reese. And I share a lot of tips and information on my Instagram account. I also have my podcast, Navigating Infertility, and I'll also be launching a little bit later in the year, um, back end of 2023, my signature program, which is a three-month transformational program called Reclaim Your Life, and that moves people through finding that stillness and calming the nervous system, delving into deeper emotions, and then coming out the other side and moving forward with grace and ease. And I've also got a little freebie at the moment too. Yes. It's um it's a little audio practice that can be really helpful. It's got two practices that help to calm the nervous system and also unhook from that mental stress cycle. And that's called instant calm. You'll find that on my Instagram account and on my website too, which is opentolife.net. Awesome. I'm gonna put all of these links in the show notes. So you can go there to click and connect right to Sarah. 
um, and to all of her stuff. I'm so excited about all the things, Sarah, that you have coming up this year um, to offer. Um, I know that I always feel very peaceful and calm when I talk to you and um, you're just a fantastic human. So thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your busy day to be here with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having you, Maida. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for joining us today on Infertility Crossroads. I will see you on our next episode. Before you go, I have a few things I want to share with you. Continue the conversation with me on my Instagram page at Maida Getman. I love connecting with people and I would love for you to join me there at M-E-T-A-G-E-T-M-A-N on Instagram. If you just learned that using a donor might be your path to becoming a parent, or if you have an inkling that donor conception is the path for you, head to my website, www.medagetman.com slash podcast and download my free PDF donor decision guide. This resource is packed full of questions to consider if you are even thinking about using a donor. That's metagetman.com slash podcast. Lastly, I am not a doctor, a psychologist, a nutritionist, or a professional in the area of fertility. I am a person who has gone through infertility, has learned a lot along the way, and wants to share my learnings with you. Please do not substitute what you hear on the show for professional advice. That's what the pros are for. If you want to learn more about my terms and conditions, go to my website, madeagetman.com.